Corbin. Nothing personal word of the day is Corbin, as in Billy Corbin. You know him as one of the great filmmakers of his generation, maybe all, but I don't want to give him that much credit yet. I'm so thankful that he's taken the time. He has a new limited series on Netflix called Cocaine Cowboys, Kings of Miami. If you have not watched it, pause this right now. Well, don't. Well, subscribe, pause, and then come back to it because every minute, of every episode is worth your time. I watched it all the way through in the middle of the night without using any of the product that is part of that show. Billy Corbin, welcome to a Samson sit down. How are you, Billy? Great to be here on OPM with Dave Samson. I Nice. <laughs> okay, Coca, you win. It was under one minute before his first comment. OPM, of course, is other people's money. Billy Corbin and I have an interesting history. He uh, he had never met me when he had just pilloried me for years and years and years. We did an appearance on Lebitard together, and we talked about public finance. We're going to talk about that a little later, but now we know each other, and he is a true mensch, but he still doesn't like me. But he is here in the middle of a huge Netflix PR campaign. But I want to take our audience back to the beginning and you, people may not know you. You should follow Billy on Twitter. He is an activist. He is very involved in Miami. He doesn't just reflect Miami in his movies and in his documentaries. He actually cares about the politics in Miami and about doing the right thing, which in Miami does not happen all that often. So, Billy, I want to start just in the beginning. How early did you know in your life that you were going to be an activist? And did you like politics before you liked movies? Huh. Um. No, I definitely like movies before I like politics. Um, I, I think I fell into, I mean, the activism label came very late in life, which is to say very, very more recently for me. Um, but, and, and I wonder how that happened. <laughs> now that you, now that you asked the question, I have to think about it uh, because I feel like it was through the filmmaking. I think it was through the filmmaking where, where we discovered so much about our community. And that's the thing about our, our documentaries, you know, we call our genre pop docs and more to the point, Florida fuckery is really our, our genre, which is also the state's number one export, uh, of course. But um, I think as we started to make these documentaries like Cocaine Cowboys, like um, the ESPN 30 for 30s, like the U um, and Dogfight, and it was really us kind of examining our childhood and our community. I was a, I am a Florida native and a lifelong Miamian. And so I think a lot of these are asking questions, maybe awkward questions we asked our parents growing up, like, what about this crime? What about all this money in the midst of a worldwide recession? And, and trying to explain the, the city that we grew up in. And so I think it was maybe through the docs that um, I became more uh, involved in, in the community. I also studied at the University of Miami Political Science. So I was interested in politics. I, I was really like in a pre-law curriculum. So if the doc thing didn't work out, I probably would have wound up in, in, in law school. Uh, so um, doing a project like this, which was really like our law school education, watching the Willie and Sal story unfold uh, kind of brings it full circle for me, I think. The Willie and Sal story, if you have not seen Cocaine Cowboys, those are the drug kingpins of Miami. If you did coke in the 80s in Miami, it reminded me of the movie Blow, Billy, where Johnny Depp said in the narration in Blow, if you were doing coke in the 1980s in California, it was coming from George Young. And if you were doing coke in Miami in the 80s, it was coming from Willie and Sal. But I don't want to leave the politics because people accuse you of being a hater of Miami. And I actually defend you. And I know you don't defend me ever, but I defend you saying you're actually a lover of Miami and you're trying to educate people about what goes on because so few people take an interest in local politics. Do you agree with that or no? Well, Miami has a transient population and a lack of institutional memory. I mean, the city literally transforms not just aesthetically, but, uh, but in terms of population, uh, every 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, it's it just, it never looks the same. Uh, most of the people who were here before either leave or die, and then there's just an absolute influx of, of newcomers who don't really know, not really, they don't know anything about Miami. Uh, and if you do not know your history, you are doomed to repeat it. And that's why Miami is kind of like America's 
you know, it's one of the youngest cities in the country and it is America's perpetual rebellious teenager. You know, it's not interested in history. It's not interested in preservation. It's always about new shit, right? The kids want the new shit, right? The newest iPhone, the newest this, the newest that. And that's kind of like Miami. We don't see the value in preservation. We don't see the value in, in, in archiving or in our history. And, and more importantly, the reason we don't is because there's really so much criminality. It's really America's Casablanca here. You know, we have a white market, we have a black market, but most of Miami, I think, exists in a gray market. That's We have a gray market economy. It really, in many ways, uh, that's not an accusation. That's just an observation. It, in, because in many ways, it's the only way to really effectively operate uh, in Miami because it's difficult to, to have a legitimate business and be successful and make a living and be able to afford to live in a community with, with this uh, with with uh, uh, the quality of life uh, in a place as expensive as this. But when you're going after politicians, are you saying that they don't understand or recognize Miami's history or are you saying they know it and they don't care about it because they're just about themselves? I'm saying they don't care about it because they want to get, get away with the same shit that their predecessors did. I mean, th you know, that's that's the problem is that uh, they don't care about Miami. They don't care about the people in Miami. They're just cheerleaders and they're con men. Let's be perfect. And con women. Let's be perfectly honest uh, about it. They profit from uh, from the essentially selling out their own constituents. I mean, but, let's look at but Billy. Do you think yeah. that doesn't exist anywhere other than Miami? Like, do you think that's unique to Miami? Oh, I, I don't think it's unique to Miami. I think the level of it that we see here is unique to Miami because we don't have indigenous industry. We don't have, you know, we subsist from hustle, hustle to hustle, you know, like the tech, tech, tech shit is the new cocaine. You know, it's just it's just it's just it's all a real estate hustle to attract more people here. The the economy here is not self-sustaining. It's simply a Ponzi scheme. We rely solely on newcomers arriving and outside revenue uh, uh, being pumped in here because the second it stops, the whole economy would would utterly collapse. I mean, let's look at two of the most famous cities in the world. Um, city, city of Miami is so famous. In fact, we renamed the county Metro Dade County, Miami Dade County. Um, by, by referendum back in the 90s, um, and Miami Beach, right? I, I would argue that you go anywhere in the world, even amongst people who've never traveled anywhere, and they would recognize Miami and Miami Beach at, just as a, as a brand. And both of those cities, those flagship cities of the 34 municipalities in Miami-Dade County, they both have second-generation mayors. Both of the mayors, their fathers, were mayors before them. What kind of a what kind of third world nonsense is that? Dan Gelber in Miami Beach, Francis Suarez in Miami. These are these are like dynastic hustles. These are political crime families that once you get a taste of that public money, you know what I'm talking about, Dave. It's more addictive than crack. It's more addictive but, than crack cocaine. Billy, hold on. When you know that that money is sitting out there, these people and their families feed in the public trough for generations. In, in Miami, one of the poorest cities in the country, where you have a mayor who works, who has two private sector jobs in addition to his public sector job, where he works for some of the richest people, including the, the richest zip code. He was a lobbyist for the residents of Fisher Island while secretly, by the way, unregistered lobbyist for Fisher Island, the most expensive and richest uh, zip code in the country, while he was the mayor of the, one of the poorest cities. Who is he looking out for? Who does he actually represent when he's sitting across the table from someone who, whose interests uh, uh, is he representing? So hold on, because what about the Bushes or the Kennedys or the Cuomos? You're acting as though Miami is the only place where there are intergenerational politicians. That's not actually the case. It's actually common. It's like like kids of athletes are sometimes are athletes. That doesn't make them bad. By definition, someone who has a parent who's doing something doesn't mean that they do it worse, the same or better. It just means that's what they grew up with. And, and I am not defending the politicians in Miami because they're just so easy to attack and they're so easy to take advantage of because of the reason you said, because any smart person like you knows exactly what they want and therefore you can get anything you want from that type of person. But that's not unique to Miami. I, as I said, first of all, I'm a native Floridian and a lifelong Miami. Okay, so my interest is here, and and my my passion for improving a community is not in New York, uh, is not in Chicago, is not in Los Angeles. It's here in Miami, and I didn't say it, this was the only place where this happens, but I think the level of it 
is is unique. Uh, and when you have, you know, we have 34 incorporated areas, 34 cities, townships, villages, municipalities. The spirit of that was more localized and accountable government. And instead, what it turned into was 34 opportunities, additional Systems. opportunities for them for them to steal from us, for them to plant a flag. It's like, you know, Game of Thrones in paradise with iguanas instead of dragons. And so you have these political crime families and lobbyists and, and uh, you know, and police unions who kind of stake a claim and bleed the taxpayers dry. That's the thing. You look at some of these cities like Opalaka, for example, Sweetwater, Hialeah, uh, my, some of them are nothing more than racketeering organizations. The government are, is effectively legalized crime. They provide little to no services to their constituents. And who are the victims of these crimes? Who are the victims of these racketeer, racketeering organizations? Their constituents, the residents of these communities. The FBI, for crying out loud, raided City Hall at Opalaka. Uh, years ago. I mean, what kind of what kind of government yeah, is that? By the way, those people keep voting for the same politicians. The way they well, get we, elected is that they don't realize they're being stolen from and they fall prey to the the words, the words that are spoken and their their platform. While your platform is getting so much bigger that I want to talk about what you're going to do with that platform. But in theory, their platform has always been so large that the incumbents always have the advantage everywhere. But in Miami, it is a real issue. And the best thing that they could do is um, destroy the school system, create uh, a generation of of undereducated people, of poor people who have to have three jobs in Miami just to make ends meet, who can't engage in government. For crying out loud, government meetings, if you want to participate in your government, are 9 a.m. on a weekday. Who the fuck can go to a meeting at 9 a.m. on a weekday? If they really wanted you to engage with their government, they'd at least try to make it on a weekend, not that people aren't working one of those Four, three or four jobs on the weekend. But the whole point is the only people who can afford to go to a government meeting and engage in their government are the people being paid to attend, whether they are in government, whether they are electeds, lobbyists, lawyers, people who want something from, from the government and, and can afford to show up and buy it uh, from them and buy those politicians. Again, not unique to Miami, but I think it exists here on a level that is unprecedented because you don't have people who understand that history, who know who these people are. The name recognition should be toxic. Instead of voting for the names you recognize, you should go, well, holy crap, I'm not voting for any of these names that I recognize because these people are quite literally criminals. And I got to tell you, there's guys like Art Teal who are probably rolling over uh, in their grave. You got guys like, uh, you know, like the former mayor of Miami Beach, Alex Dowd, who was busted for like taking four grand from a developer. I mean, petty shit. But you look at Keon Hardiman with a $37 million slush fund from a developer. You look at Francis Suarez, who dollar for dollar is the most corrupt mayor in the history of Miami. Quite an achievement, I will grant him that. Uh, dollar for dollar, never seen anyone shake people down and profit more on the backs of, poor, of their poor constituents than Francis Suarez, Mayor Postalita. Okay, so but these guys are getting away with crimes, things that used to be crimes. But I think what's happened is the people who make the laws have insulated themselves from those laws. They have actually made bribery and graft and corruption legal. And in this community, we don't have a, a prosecutor. You've had the same state attorney, same top cop who's supposed to be uh, holding people accountable in the public sector for 28 years. For 28 years, we've had the same state attorney, and she has virtually done, she's virtually done nothing in the public corruption space at all. They, we have the so-called friends and family uh, plan here in Miami because these elected officials, as Catherine Fernandez-Rundle is an elected official, re-elected every four years for 28 years, um, and she has never prosecuted, for example, a police officer for an on-duty shooting, ever, uh, an on-duty killing, I'm sorry, um, and only for an on-duty shooting a few years ago. Uh, for the very first time in her 28-year career. And so that sends a message to people in, in the public sector of this, in this community. It's a message of impunity. And they behave that way. They behave, they are overtly uh, corrupt. And I think that is somewhat unique. So let me put you on the spot. You are elected mayor. You are the new mayor of Miami. Whether it's Miami-Dade, people listening don't know the difference. There's a county of Miami-Dade. There's the city of Miami. I had a deal with both of them while trying to get a ballpark, and they were equally equally easy to manipulate. If you were the mayor, I'm not sure the Marlins would be here. So I need your top 
three, <laughs> top three initiatives. If you're married, you get a one-year term and that's it. What are the three things you're doing? If I were the mayor, the Marlins would not be here and who would notice? Um, I, I, so. Well, Derek would notice, but, but we're past that. The Marlins are here. You lost, <laughs> that one. you lost it so hard, Billy. I can't believe it. You tried. You had people after me, all, all, all angles, all to no avail, but oh, now you're the mayor. I didn't, first of all, I didn't try that hard. Um, you never saw oh. me at a meeting. You never saw me show up. And I did not have the platform on social media uh, then that I do now. I didn't try that hard. You, you know, do I you think I would have gotten the deal done today I, with you around. I, I was an armchair uh, <laughs> warrior at that at that point, to be to be perfectly honest. I'm sorry. What was the last question? Do you think that we would have gotten the deal done if you had the platform that you have now, if you had it then? Do you think that you are effectuating change due to your platform or are you feeling frustration? Oh, I think I'm, I, I think a little bit of a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Um, I, I think that I don't know that I would have stopped you back then, but it would have been a it would have been a fun fight. Uh, it would have certainly would have been a, a fairer fight. I think that, you know, what? Um, there was a, uh, a commissioner council person at a local municipality who told me many years ago as the, the tiny little municipality in Miami-Dade that was having a big scandal. And um, she said to me. Uh, and incidentally, the scandal would have gone totally under the rug had it not been for the for reporting in the Miami Herald about it. And she said to me, you know, uh, she was new to government, too. This is a, her first time she ran for office. She won. She's in this this yokel, you know, city council. And she said, you know. Oftentimes we have to be embarrassed into doing the right thing. And I think you know that. And unfortunately, we have absolutely shamelessly corrupt people. I mean, that's what I say. I, I would I would say shame on them if they had any shame. And that's really what we're dealing with, I think, by and large in this government, because they, they can literally get away with murder in this town with absolutely zero uh, accountability. But I, I, I try my best to shame them into doing the right thing. And I think with, with very mixed results. OK, so you're the mayor. You got three things. Right. Would you take would you put term limits? Would that be your first thing? Three things you get want to get done in your in one year as mayor. The problem is the mayor. You you say mayor of what, and it doesn't matter because people don't know the difference. And you're a hundred percent right about that. Nobody can keep up with my my commute, my old commute to work. I would go, I would I would maybe maybe twenty minutes with no traffic, and I on that drive, ten mile drive, I could be pulled over by any one of six different police departments depending on the route that I took. Okay, it's not like NY, you know, New York, where it's the NYPD and the five boroughs. Like, it's insane how many different you know fiefdoms uh, that there are. So when you say it doesn't matter, it does matter because, for example, the mayor of the city of Miami has no power by charter, virtually no power by charter. He's a hood ornament. He's a mascot in the head coach's office. Okay, so it's 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 practically a you know a, a symbolic position to like, you know, cut ribbons with 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 oversized scissors and and hand out, you know, uh, uh, de declare days and hand out keys to the city, uh, which Billy, by the way, you claim that he, yeah. though, is the is the most guilty and making the most money. That means he's pretty good at being a hood ornament, doesn't it? I say he's pretty he's a pretty good shakedown artist. He's a pretty good con man because he works in the private sector as a lobbyist for millionaires and billionaires against the interests of his own city and his own constituents. So he's very good at lobbying for his clients, not his constituents. He's but if he doesn't he have the power, but, but, you're, but on one hand, you're saying he doesn't have the power, he's a hood ornament. So what exactly could he do for his constituents? What, what any lobbyist can do for their clients. That's, that's what I'm saying. He, could, he, he can lobby for them. He, he does uh, exert some influence and pressure over the city manager, over the city attorney, over individual uh, commissioners. Okay, he helps spread the largesse of his inexplicable contributions. When I say inexplicable, I mean, he's running unopposed for mayor, yet he has millions and millions of dollars in a municipality with what, 450,000 people? Well, what does he need that kind of money for? He needs that kind of money because the city of Miami, just the city of Miami, not the county of Dade, which has a $9 billion budget, but the city of Miami has a 1.3 billion with a B dollar budget. That's a lot of money in a tiny city, okay, of, of mostly poor people, okay? And what over nearly 75 cents of every dollar in that budget goes into one line item, 
which is salaries and benefits for the employees of the city of Miami. So somebody is getting rich off of government in the city of Miami, and it is not the people who need the services that this incompetent and corrupt government does not provide. I'm not going to let you go. I need three things that you would do. You've had again, time to you, think about it. We've delayed enough. And I'm saying I'm, that you've got the power. Take the power. You ever, you're the strong mayor, Billy, because you've got this platform. Here's my point. Yeah. I think that you do a great job of using your platform and bringing to the attention things that are happening, because that's mostly what you do. You call out people for doing things. But I'm now asking for you to go one step further. What are the solutions to these things? If I have a blank check, I can wave a magic wand as the strong mayor of the county. First and foremost, we need to institute legitimate, uh, legitimate campaign finance reform. Uh, we need to find a way to effectively, obviously within the confines of, you know, of the Supreme Court, find a way to uh, end uh, these just these uh, uh, blank checks that are being written to our politicians that essentially guarantee that once you are elected for one term, you'll be there for however long term limits will allow you to be. Um, you know, you have politics, you know, because I, I, I say that, you know, you don't change the system, the system changes you, which is why I feel I can be far more effective outside the system than I ever could uh, within the system. I mean, you need only look at commissioners at the county like Eileen Higgins or Commissioner uh, Ken Russell, total con man. You know, this was a guy who ran, okay, uh, originally he ran uh, as the anti-Sarnoff candidate. He was running against Mark Sarnoff's effectively third term against his wife, uh, Mark Sarnoff's wife, Teresa Sarnoff. Four years later, Mark Sarnoff, who is a, a, a high-powered lobbyist who makes a lot of money uh, off the city of Miami, he endorses Ken Russell for re-election. So, I mean, he went from being the anti-Sarnoff candidate to the, the, to the Sarnoff. So you're talking so, micro. These are these are city commissioners in Miami. But you mentioned a very macro solution. Campaign finance reform. I had a chance to speak to a senator, uh, a U.S. senator named Kent Conrad. And I talked to him. He's a big baseball fan. And we got to switch jobs. Billy, you would love this. His whole life, he wanted to be president of a baseball team. And I always wanted to be a senator. So I spent a day as a senator and he spent a day as president of the Marlins. And I was in Washington and he was in Miami and et cetera. And we talked about campaign finance reform. And he said, the reason why it'll never happen is what you just said, is that incumbents love to have no campaign finance reform because that is how they continue to get reelected. And those are the people who would have to vote on it. So he suggested right. to me to fight the fights worth fighting. And that is a fight that you are never going to win. And this is a man who would love to have it changed because that's not Miami centric either. Campaign finance issues are from the president down to every local election in every state. Right. So that's one. I love that well, you would change that. You and you, you and Kent have that in common. You want to be the president of a major league baseball team, too. Um, and, I was. And so I, I heard I heard I read that somewhere. Uh, in, in your in your survivor bio, I thought just before they voted you off the island in the first episode. Um, but uh, I what is the purpose of bringing you, that up? Like, does you, that make you feel good? Yeah, I'm, I have friends doing a drinking game at home while they're watching this. And so they're they're doing a they're doing a shot right now uh, is what's happening. And by friends, I mean, hi, Dan. Are we allowed are we allowed to mention? Yes. Is, no, is like CBS is very aware of my relationship with Metal Ark and with Levitard. Like that's like being on the WWE and mentioning AEW. I feel like we're not like Vince would never allow that, you know. So I, I have to. Okay, have campaign to finance reform number two. Nope. Um, number two, I would, uh, I would stop. I would end sports welfare. Um, obviously okay. there are deals. There are deals that already exist that we would be obliged to, um, to to fulfill our contractual uh, agreements. But I would end sports welfare. Um, I would be building parks for children and for families, creating better quality of life. I would not be building parks for millionaires and billionaires, or in the case of, of, uh, of, of your uh, former boss, um, turning millionaire, turning multimillionaires into billionaires on the backs of taxpayer dollars. I would put a, a stop to that. And when you see Francis Suarez, um, uh, you know, sh show up in, in, in his dad's suit, to a Miami Herald editorial board meeting 
sitting across, sitting next to Jorge Mas and across the table from the editorial board. And he's sitting there in a suit and tie with a legal pad, effectively representing the best interests of Jorge Mas and his private group who is trying to uh, take over the, the largest- owner of Inter Miami, which is the MLS team, David Beckham's team, is run by Jorge Mas, who is a local politician, who's a local politician, a local businessman <laughs> a who's trying Freudian to do slip. A, exactly is trying to do a real estate deal where a ballpark, a soccer stadium, will be built, but it's really a real estate play for him, and uh, I'm not so sure it's going to work. That's who Jorge Mas is. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's a real estate play for the largest piece of property owned by the the, the taxpayers of the city of Miami, and Francis Suarez is acting like Jorge Mas's realtor rather than the mayor of the city of Miami. And because Francis Suarez claims attorney-client privilege over his client list as a lawyer, we actually don't know. He has a secret client list. We don't know where his conflicts of interest are. And I believe that we certainly have seen Jorge Mas through public records donate and package donations for uh, for Francis Suarez's pack. Um, but I'm, I'm, I, no, you prove me wrong, Francis. Show us your your client list that Jorge Mas is in fact a private uh, client of yours. But my point is that nobody is sitting on the other side of the table, and you know this better than anybody, Dave. Nobody is sitting on the other side of the table, really representing the taxpayers in these sports welfare transactions. These politicians have warped priorities and perverse incentives. And but those, Billy, Billy, I, 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 you have a small blind spot because you're so angry about sports and public financing. What about the tax incentives that are given to other millionaire business owners, whether it's Burger King, whether it's real estate yeah. moguls like Stephen Ross as part of Related, not part of owning the Dolphins? Are you just saying you want to get rid of public sports welfare or do you want to stop any tax-based incentives for business to be in Miami? No. So, and Big Sugar is another good example too. I No, I, I was going to extend this out. I mean, sports welfare is sort of the, the buzzword and the headline. I would extend this out to, include. I think that, I'm sorry, the government should help support and if necessary, provide grants or opportunities for small business and locally owned businesses. I think at a certain point, we should not be providing welfare for millionaires and billionaires. Uh, incentives are, are one thing, but I think that taxpayers should not be subsidizing uh, the, the businesses and the hobbies of wealthy people. But I they are, right? A tax incentive is the same. Dollars are fungible. If you give a business a tax benefit, they, are, they have extra cash flow, extra EBITDA that is being distributed to them as owners of the business. I think incentives can come in other ways, though. Is, is what I'm saying. I think there can be uh, I think I think there can be other incentives. I think we can uh, we can provide uh, uh, and I, by the way, I think when I as I say this, I realize we should provide this for everybody. I think we should find a way to fast track uh, permits. I think we should find a, a way to fast track um, and and have more effective um, inspections, obviously in this town. Um, like for example, inspectors have to actually show up and inspect sites before they sign off on them. For just as one example, um, but I think that we, I think we need to improve government services, not just for the wealthy and business owners, but for for everybody. I think for for there to be for for millionaire and billionaire developers to get a permit signed off on like that, while some poor schmuck in the city is waiting two years to build a fence or paint a fence around their private home. I think I think those are the types of incentives. I think improving government, okay. spending some of that one point. $3 billion budget to actually providing constituent services and better and improving government services would be part and parcel of what I'm talking about. Do you actually get incentives when you're making your movies that you film around here in Miami? Not anymore. Uh, the state of Florida had a, first it was a cash incentive, then it was a tax incentive, and then it was gone. And I get called all the time by people in the, in the local industry or in the state industry by, by, uh, state legislature, uh, legislators to speak out and lobby for these incentives. I've never, ever done that. I fundamentally, ideologically do not believe in them. I think that that money would be better spent on, on, on other things. When it was the law and when they were offered to us, in many ways, it, it, it was a bit of a nuisance because if we did a contract, for example, with uh, Viacom, with a, a company to to, they commissioned a project from us. And if we, and in the agreement, if we uh, produced or, or were doing any production in states or towns that had production incentives, we were compelled to go through that process to what? 
to make 50 grand for Viacom for this multi-billion dollar multinational corporation. So in many ways, it was more trouble for us uh, than it was even worth. Um, and so I never lobbied for it. I never supported it. But when it was the law of the land, uh, it was something that we, uh, in many cases, were obligated to apply for. So I want to spend some time on cocaine. I have a third one. I have oh, a third one. Sorry. Oh, my God. We didn't do a third one. Go, Billy. Yeah. Affordable housing. Um, Good. That's and a affordable tough, housing. That's a very tough subject, by the way. And, affordable and housing affordable is housing. one of Affordable housing is one of the big issues in the deal in Oakland for public financing for their ballpark, because while the A's owners are going to spend money on the ballpark, what they're really doing, it's an ancillary real estate play like what Jorge Mas is doing here. And affordable housing is a big issue because people who own the housing don't want it to be affordable housing because they don't make as much money. And if I may bootstrap, I think that includes climate change and sea level rise mitigation, because a lot of what we're seeing here is climate uh, change gentrification. Um, and of course, now we're seeing um, uh, property owners exploiting the tragedy of the Champlain Tower South uh, collapse to try to push lower income people out of buildings so that they can sell their property because we're in a boom uh, cycle right now in Miami and build unaffordable housing uh, uh, in this community, which we certainly don't need any more of. Billy is referring to the Surfside building collapse, which made national news that scared everybody half to death around the country and certainly in Miami. I want to talk about Cocaine Cowboys. I want to tell people several movies that Billy's done that you have to watch. If there's like a Mount Rushmore of Billy Corbin movies, he is a prolific filmmaker who just every movie, and I'm not just saying this, believe me, I'd like to, I'm actually a great fan of yours because I go into your movies not wanting to like them. It it would be my pleasure to have a bad review on nothing personal for your shows. It's like me walking into Marlins Park. Yeah. And rooting for them to lose, right? Even though you get pleasure out of them winning, but then you'd not want to admit that. So the first show I saw, you did Square Grouper. I would start by watching Square Grouper, even though they came out after Cocaine Cowboys, the original. And then I would watch Screwball, which is brilliant about, again, because Miami, about uh, A-Rod and steroids, and you chose to do child actors. Just, we have so much to cover because I want to talk Coco Cowboys. What made you put child actors playing adults in Screwball? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, it was several things. I mean, it was an idea that had been uh, gestating in my brain for for quite a long time. I think ever since um, Spike Jones did that brilliant uh, posthumous video for Biggie, uh, in which he used all the kids because Biggie was gone and and he needed to produce a quintessential um, bad boy records music video of that moment, you know, of the 90s and, and instead had like eight-year-old children, but all blinged out, you know, with the Mercedes and the hot tub and the and the and the jewelry and the Versace clothes and the and the cane for baby Biggie and baby Puffy and baby Busta Rhymes and baby Lil' Kim. I mean, it was just it was it was fantastic. And so I feel like that was the original idea for it. And then um about a decade or more ago, I tried to make a Scientology documentary. This was before anybody made a Scientology documentary uh, because they were the church was extremely uh, litigious and everybody was really scared. You know, before HBO did it, A and E did it. Um, nobody wanted to do a Scientology documentary. So I had a, a conceit. I had not a way around it, but I had a, a, a concept that I thought might be a buffer. There was these two guys who wrote a musical an off-Broadway musical, which I saw in New York, called A Very Merry Unauthorized Children's Scientology Pageant, which was a musical performed entirely by elementary school children. And instead of a Christmas pageant, like the story of Jesus, it was a Scientology pageant, the story of L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology. And it was done almost straight-faced in a way where you could you could, we were laughing at it, but you could just as easily see Scientologists beaming with pride at it. It was just that ingenious. And so I talked to um, one of the creators and I said, I would like to 
work with you and license the show and make the the musical with the children a framing device for the documentary, meaning we would do a traditional kind of investigative journalism, talking heads documentary with our archive and B-roll, but then we would stop for these like musical interludes with the children. So needless to say, I never got that made. <laughs> that was one that got away. Um, but um, so again, an idea that had been kicking around in my head. And let me tell you, you can't use this idea, this gimmick for, for, for anything. I mean, you can't do a cocaine cow babies documentary with a bunch of eight, <laughs> eight year old assassins. Or I'm drug not sure Netflix would pay that. you for that. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, so we, so then we were making Screwball about uh, A-Rod and the biogenesis steroid scandal down here in Miami. And we interviewed two of the key players in the story, uh, Dr. Uh, Tony Bosch, that's air quotes for the people listening, uh, and um, Porter Fisher, who was the whistleblower who turned over the documents to the Miami New Times, who who blew the whole thing up and uh, shut it all down and, and got A-Rod and a whole bunch of other folks uh, suspended and in trouble. And so long story even longer, um, a lot of that story, a sports doc is, I mean, the, the, is pretty easy, to be honest, the, the, the format of it. You talk to the sports people, they tell you about the sports games, you go get footage of the sports games to put over the sports people. Like that's the, that's the, the, the format of that. That's the template. Here, these guys are talking about shit that happened in a strip mall, right? In a hotel room, in a locker room, behind closed doors, out of the watchful eyes of the media. So there is no archive footage or real B-roll to show. So we had a B-roll deficit. It was a real, real legitimate uh, uh, challenge that we needed to overcome, an obstacle. And so I always say limitations breed creativity. So one day I'm listening or watching the interviews with these two guys. We did a, a string out or what we call a radio cut of the story with just, you know, basically just jump cuts of the interviews strung together telling the story. And I realized that both of these guys who were mortal enemies, by the way, on opposite sides of this thing, um, both had similar storytelling styles. They would both speak like in, in, in dialogue. They would set the scene and they would play it out like in real time. They'd be like, so I walked into Tony's office and I said, Tony, I want my money. And Tony says, I don't have your money. And I said, what the fuck are you talking about? You don't have my money. And he says, what are you going to do about it? And I said, you, I'm going to come across that. And, but they both talked that way. And I was like, oh shit, they speak in dialogue. We could totally drunk history this, you know, where we could do reenactments with actors, uh, lip syncing the dialogue. Uh, and, and I thought we'd do it with eight-year-old kids who would be with facial hair, with lab coats, pinstripes, um, on location you know, dressed as cops on location. In fact, we shot at many of the real locations in Miami that the story took place at. Live uh, nightclub at the Fountain Blue, the Ritz Carlton in Key Biscayne, the Sports Grill in South Miami, um, a, a local tanning salon. Um, and so uh, that was how that was. Uh, that was, if, how you, was if you haven't seen Screwball, watch that as your second Billy Corbin documentary. It's, it's on it's now streaming on Netflix. It's thank you for promoting that. And now to the current Netflix trending. Congratulations. It's I don't know how the algorithm works. I don't know if Netflix chooses you to do this or if it's based on the number of people who are watching at any given time. But I always go to the trending and the top 10 of the day and Cocaine Cowboys is there and has been there. So I want to talk about it a little bit because to it's, paraphrase it's, to paraphrase Gloria Stefan, the algorithm is going to get you. <laughs> Thank you. That is probably over many people's heads, but maybe Dan will take a drink. So <laughs> this is about cocaine and Miami is the cocaine capital really of the world because it's so close. It is where you get to to get to the rest of the United States in theory and you get by boat and and you do an unbelievable job of framing it. I'm just curious of your relationship with these drug kingpins, with the people who are maybe need protection or former drug lords. When you are doing a documentary like Cocaine Cowboys, do you ever say to yourself, like, I may have a problem here with Willie or with Sal or with something? Like, does that occur to you? Because steroids is one thing and square grouper, which is weed, maybe another, but cocaine is no joke and the violence is no joke. Do you think about that? Well, the stories that we tell, I mean, a lot of people are dead or in prison. Um, and a lot of people who talk to us are coming out of prison or the witness protection program. Um, as one of our key interviews uh, in this, in the Kings of Miami. Um, but a lot of the stories that we're telling are about the, the battle good old days, you know, or the good old battle days. And so a lot of these stories are decades old. They're, it's about the crazy shit they did in their 20s. 
you know, so, so there is some distance um, and some perspective on it. There may even be a tinge of nostalgia, uh, but you know, a lot, that's the thing about a lot of the stories we tell. I mean, when I was in Oakland though, doing Cocaine Cowboys 2, Hustling with the Godmother, we were shooting outside of, a, of an apartment building that uh, uh, Charles Cosby, our subject had, that was like his first place that he sold uh, crack out of. And a guy did come out with a weapon and chase us uh, away. So there are moments like that, 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 you know, there, there is some danger, but listen, also I have to say about Kings of Miami is that this is like a Miami, you know, Cuban family story. And everybody that I met on it, regardless of what they were accused of, were pretty chill and pretty cool people. I mean, I was in their homes and, and it's like visiting, it's like visiting my friend's families in high school in Westchester. You know what I mean? Like, like they're all pretty chill. And most of the families, family members were not in the business. So they were just normal, hardworking immigrants, you know, so you and never and so, had problems getting anyone to cooperate. Like as you were making oh, cocaine cowboys. Always. We always, I mean, you, you hear no a lot more than, than you hear. Yes. I'm always surprised when people are, are willing to talk. But I think, you know, we're in this era where documentaries are so ubiquitous. You know, they're such a popular form of entertainment now. It's almost like postmodern at this point where Alfred Spellman, my producing, producing partner, often jokes that when people get released from prison in Florida, their first call is to their mother and their second call is to us at Rack and Tour to make a documentary. Um, it's not quite, he's exaggerating certainly, uh, but it's becoming a little more easier to find people who are willing to talk about Really, the most embarrassing and 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 perhaps tragic times of their lives when they were you know committing crimes. I was just gonna say they're criminals. I'm not sure there's tragic anywhere in there when you're a criminal. How did you get though? In Cocaine Cowboys, there's a bunch of what what I thought, and maybe you made it up, but it looked like actual conversations and wires and footage. How do you get that stuff? Yeah, well, in this case, um, you know, oh, I will say there is tragedy certainly when you're a criminal. In many cases, their families are innocent victims. Their children their grandchildren, their spouses. Uh, some of them knew what was going on, some of them didn't. But uh, And then sometimes there's victims of their criminality, whether it's people who are addicted to drugs, people who die from overdoses. Sometimes in, in this trade, there can be, you know, it's an, it's an illegal trade. It's a high, uh, uh, it's, a, it's an expensive trade and it's a cons consignment business. And so people enforce that the only way they can enforce a, a business like that. So sometimes there's there's violence. So there is a lot of tragedy, I think, uh, involved here. Uh, not to mention people just wind up dead or in prison uh, in the end um, in these rise and fall uh, stories. But we, so this was a, we worked on this documentary on, uh, on this series, The Kings of Miami for 12 years. So it was a real passion project for us growing up knowing about Willie and Sal. Um, and so we uh, did an interview way back when, like 2011-ish, with Ocean Drive magazine. And in it, we talked about the Los Muchachos story, Willie and Sal being a, you know, a kind of a bucket list documentary project for us. And lo and behold, Sal Magluda uh, in federal prison has a subscription to Ocean Drive magazine and reads this interview and reaches out to me. I, there's a line in the series that there may be six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but in Miami, there's only one or two degrees away from Willie and Sal. And, and true to that adage, uh, family and friends reached out to me, directly to me, and said, Sal would like to talk with you. And he and I became uh, pen pals for a time. Uh, and eventually, as the years went on and, and we talked about this project, uh, he invited me to his parents' house. His mother made me cafecito and fed me pastelitos and opened up photo albums uh, from ch uh, Sal's childhood in Cuba all the way through their offshore uh, powerboat racing days where they were world champions four times over all the way into the 90s um, when Sal was locked up. And uh, so uh, we basically got access to Sal's uh, private uh, personal archives. And years after that, I wound up in a giant walk-in storage unit that contained 20 years of Sal's legal records, including transcripts, filings, uh, trial exhibits, uh, videotapes, audio tapes, some of the surveillance materials that you were talking about, um, and got that all there. In addition, we of course, you know, went, uh, we talked extensively with the FBI and the US assistant US attorneys in the Southern District of Florida, and they provided uh, many of those records as well. In fact, the ledger that you see Marilyn Bonacea reading from with the $7 million in cash that she helped move around for which uh, uh, she and, and, and Sal Magluta were charged with money laundering over. Um, that's the actual uh, ledger that we borrowed 
uh, from the FBI that she we reunited her with her ledger uh, so she could walk us through the alleged money laundering uh, right in the interview on camera. So did you f- start and finish Screwball all while you were still working on Cocaine Cowboys? Well, you want to go through the filmography? I can tell you all the projects that we started and and finished and released during the time that we were working on Cocaine Cowboys, the Kings of Miami. I mean, it's it's virtually our entire filmography after Cocaine Cowboys 2. And um, so the U, right around, we started right around the same time, the U part two broke. Dogfight, we started a little sooner, but we released during that period. Um, Screwball, certainly. Um, Tanning of America, One Nation Under Hip Hop. Um, Collision Course, The Murder of Don Aronow, which is a 30 for 30 short in the same world of the intersection of drug smuggling and, and, and offshore powerboat racing in Miami in the 80s. Um, yeah, I mean, most of our most of our filmography has come and gone uh, while we were working on the Kings of Miami. You must sleep as little as I do because you're doing all that. You're still active in the community. You're always looking for your next project. I give you a lot of credit because most people just would criticize what goes on, but not try to change or not bring attention to it. Your movies do that. Your activism does that. Miami is better off to have you there. I never thought I'd say that but they really are. And uh, we're, we're, we're going to be done in a minute here. You've given me 46 minutes of your time. I need to ask, what's next? What are you working on right now? What's the next release? Well, you know, we worked on this show for 12 years and a lot of, we talked about it publicly for much of that time. And so there have been fans of the Cocaine Cowboys franchise out there who have been waiting literally 12 years for it. And so now I'm trying to play the cards a little bit closer to the best because God forbid one of one of the six projects that we're currently working on takes 12 years to make. I don't want to uh, I don't want to uh, uh, let anybody down. So we're there's a lot of projects that I can't tell you about that I will promise to to come back uh, when when we're ready to make an announcement uh, about them. Do, do you have non-edited versions of all your? You know how you get extended director's cuts. Does Netflix have the final say on Cocaine Cowboys Kings of Miami or do you? Um, they they have to vet, obviously, whatever winds up on their service for obvious reasons. You know, attorneys have to look it over. Executives have to look it over. But as far as the editing, we, we do that all in-house. You know, they can give us some notes, but those are suggestions. And so the fun thing about the notes is there, there's some filmmakers who, if it's not their idea, it, it's no good. For me, not only do I know that this is such a collaborative effort, but the director, I get credit for everything anyway. If it's good, I get the credit. If it's bad, I get the blame. So if someone gives me a, a good idea that's not mine, why would I not <laughs> want to want to incorporate it? So and they've been fabulous to collaborate with and uh, and, and to work with. Uh, but they, I'm sorry, they are putting out on Netflix's YouTube page uh, either this week or next. They are releasing. I think we gave them like 15 minutes of deleted scenes, and I promise you, all of those are as good, if not better than anything that made the final cut. Then why were they deleted? Was there a running time issue? It, it was, well, it was pacing, it was time, it was redundancy. It was also audience confusion. There's a lot of names and we have like an org chart that sort of shows you the hierarchy and who everybody is. And, and yeah, it was just, you know, things that were, you know, I'll give you a great example of one of the scenes you'll see. So the Seahawk racing team was the name of their, their uh, offshore powerboat racing team. It was the name of their boat company where they manufactured engines and, and, and boats. Um, but it was also the name of their corporate softball team that they sponsored and played in in state and I think some national tournaments as well. But this is just a classic, you know, group of guys playing ball, drinking beer, corporate softball, you know, team sponsored by Seahawk. And, but they were very competitive. And so what Willie and Sal did was they flew in a guy, a ringer from Canada, a professional pitcher by the name of Sergio Crego, who, who they put him up in Miami in one of their cocaine stash houses with drugs and, and or cash in it. They paid him about five, they paid him five figures per softball game. And he pitched 90 miles an hour underhanded. Uh, and they were one of the most hated uh, softball teams uh, in the league. Um, uh, every game ends up in a brawl practically. Uh, and we use some of the footage, the game footage uh, in, in the deleted scene that you'll, that you'll see. You know, there is another baseball connection to cocaine Cowboys that I want the audience to know. One of the, Willie and Sal's partners or one of their henchmen, however you want to call them, uh, was was a man whose son 
is a professional baseball player who we knew with, with the Marlins for a long time. He didn't play for us, but we saw him. He played for the Hurricanes, and we, we, he did play against us as a college kid. John Jay, did you, if you don't know John Jay, he's an actually accomplished major leaguer, and his father spent, I think I remember from the, from the documentary, 19 years in prison, and he, and he got out recently. Did you get to speak to John Jay? I spoke to Jujusto Jay to his dad, who is who true to my comment earlier, is like a lovely, sweet guy. Like, uh, um, and uh, didn't want to participate. Obviously, he did his time. He refused to testify against Willie and Sal. Uh, what he was looking at life, but 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 refused to testify. Probably could have gotten off entirely, but wouldn't testify. Did his time uh, and is now you know living out his retirement. So I totally understand and respected uh, his decision. Um, but he was just kind of like a nice, normal Miami dude, you know, used to race boats and, and kind of just hangs out and, um, you know, and, and, uh, but got a lot of time away from his son when he was just a baby. So when, when I mentioned tragedy earlier in these situations, John Jay was very much a victim, you know, collateral damage of, yes, you could say his dad's crimes, certainly, but John Jay didn't commit any crimes. He was a baby and he was without his dad who was in federal prison for nearly uh, two decades. Yes, those were the sins of his father, but he had to pay for them as well, as did his his mother and 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 the rest of his family. Well, John Jay certainly found a way, and uh, maybe he would have been good on that corporate softball team. I was thinking about <laughs> uh, uh, all of the Miami connections and all of the baseball connections that you do, and you work business into politics, into drugs, into Miami, and all you're <laughs> doing is really educating people and trying to help them make better decisions about who they support and why they support it. And I hope you keep going doing that, Billy. Well, thanks, David. And I have to, to say, because um, everybody knows that you are a degenerate uh, movie fan. And uh, I, I heard you on, on the other show that shall not be named, uh, the, former, the former show, the fo with the former guy, um, uh, uh, you know, review our movies. And um, for what I may think of you personally, uh, I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm very... I'm very grateful for it because, and for grateful for you for inviting me on and having the opportunity to to promote the show. I always say the the measure of a successful filmmaker is not um, money, you know, or or critical acclaim or awards. It's that you get to work again, uh, and you know, we we serve at the pleasure of the audience and the algorithms on Netflix and those those rankings, which I'm not sure I understand fully how they work. But I'm grateful that we were in the the top three, the top five. We're in I think the top five globally uh, in the world. Um, I'm, I'm very grateful that people are finding this show and watching it uh, and enjoying it and for the opportunity to be here to, to, uh, to let them know that it's there if they haven't seen it yet on Netflix, Cocaine Cowboys, The Kings of Miami. Don't you miss it, everyone. Billy Corbin, thank you so much. Thank you. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.